morning. Welcome. This is Byline Mendocino. I'm your host, Alicia Bales. Today on Byline Mendocino, we'll be talking about language. If you've been listening to KZYX recently, you've probably noticed more Spanish language on our airwaves. In June, we hired a new news director, Victor Palomino, and we are working to build a bilingual news department here at KZYX to serve not just our English-speaking community, but our huge Spanish-speaking community here in Mendocino County as well. One of the concepts that we're working with here to guide our efforts is called language justice. And language justice goes beyond language access to explore the power structures and inequities built into language dominance and working to change the power imbalances so that community members who are fluent in a language other than English can still fully participate in all aspects of culture and community. Language justice includes the right everyone has to communicate, to understand, and to be understood in the languages in which they feel most comfortable. How this works on the radio is something we're excited to explore on KZYX, and my guest today will help us do just that. Jose Eduardo Sanchez is an artist and community organizer from Houston, Texas, whose work invites listeners to reimagine their relationship to language through what he describes as radical listening. So here is my interview with Jose Eduardo Sanchez. And after the interview, we'll, we'll be live in the studio with Victor Palomino to discuss how what we're doing here at KZYX fits in with the concepts of language justice. I would like to talk with you about your work and your uh, and, and language justice and what mm -hmm. that means in action. And at some point, maybe brainstorm with you about what that might look like for radio <laughs> you know how these languages can yeah. exist together in, in that kind of space too but can we start with you and, and your work just should i just start sharing in general yeah well let's start by introducing you and um you know sort of what brings you to uh what you call radical listening <laughs> <laughs> yes uh well my name is jose eduardo sanchez um i go by jose eduardo or jess uh, not Jose by itself, just it's such a common name. I like to make a little distinction. And I was born in Mexico and um, grew up there until I was 10. And then I migrated to Houston with my family, uh, where I have been um, the majority of my life. Uh, Houston is now home. Um, this is where I grew up, went to school. This is where most of my family is at at this point. And really, I always talk about how I became I became part of language justice work. I got started as an interpreter when I was 10 years old. Um, as many kids of immigrants, as many immigrants, I came here, I was enrolled in school and being so young, I was able to really catch on to English fairly quickly. Um, as soon as that happened, I became my family's official interpreter, translator, whenever we got letters in the mail, whenever we had to go to school, meet with principals or teachers, uh, whenever my mom had to go to the hospital, whenever my dad had to go and file taxes or go, you know, fill out any forms. 10 year old me was there and you know i was uh i was interpreting i was d doing my best to understand everything to support my my mom my dad um and while it's a source of pride it's also 
over the years have realized that um, it's also been a source of trauma, to be completely honest, to be in situations that as a child, you know, um, there were such complicated power dynamics, having access to information that, you know, perhaps a 10-year-old should not be having access to, and also just brokering um, and in a system that I myself was very unfamiliar with that I wasn't really able to navigate. So that's really how I came to this kind of work. And once I got older, um, I was really fortunate to start organizing here in Houston, organizing along, um, along with immigrant workers, mostly around improving working conditions, around doing a lot of work um, against wage theft, which as you know is very, very pervasive, especially in you know industries where there are a lot of immigrant workers. And organizing with immigrant workers necessarily meant that we had to constantly be creating bilingual, multilingual spaces, right? Most of the workers that I was organizing with, their first language was Spanish, uh, or in some cases it was Mixteco or Triqui. And so really learning how to create spaces where folks didn't just show up. And I think this is what organizing taught me, right? You can't just show up and say, here's interpretation, listen to what we have to say. Great, like we're gonna change our communities. Um, It's about creating bilingual spaces where people can show up and bring their whole selves and really participate and feel seen and heard and have a conversation along different ways. Uh, And that requires a different kind of listening. That requires a different kind of setup where you acknowledge that you're not just there providing access to folks who don't speak English, but acknowledge that English is not the only language of knowledge, of expertise, of power. And so from that, place, you kind of start thinking of all the other ways that you are reinforcing this, and then all the other ways that we can better create spaces to really encompass and hold the dignity and the complexity of of all of our people. I can't imagine you as a 10-year-old having the weight of the failure of our society to provide interpretation services in the hospital for your mom. Yeah. What was what what were you feeling at that time? Oh my gosh, you know, so many mixed feelings. I um my mom growing up, unfortunately, she she was very sick. She had a lot of problems with her kidney, um, which meant she underwent a lot of surgeries. Um and I, again, it was a combination of of being really happy, being really glad that my mom had someone there. Uh, to walk her through just this very difficult situation, right? Signing forms, uh, just talking to nurses, to doctors before going in the operating room. And then I think as soon as they took her away in the stroller to the OR, I sat there um, in the waiting room by myself, actually, because <laughs> I, um, unfortunately, my my dad was not in the picture at that time. My, you know, my other families, family members were not involved. And I think once I was sitting there in the OR waiting room, that's when it hit me like, wow, my mom is going into major surgery. Like, I cannot believe I just helped her sign papers that, you know, that I didn't fully understand. And that, you know, I'd rather I'd rather just have been, you know, 
with someone else away from having those conversations, from having to tell my mom all of the risks, all of the potential things that could happen, including her not coming out of that room, you know? Um, and so, yeah, it, it was complicated to say the least. And again, I've kind of learned to appreciate the ways that I was able to help my family, the, the ways that I was able to really, um, you know, the the positive impacts and also address the ways in which like hmm maybe that should not have been happening like let's let's think about that let's address you know what those negative outcomes could have been and the fact that this is falling on children of immigrants mm -hmm. um that yeah. is a, is maybe one of those gaps or blind spots mm -hmm. that these the children are doing all of this you know they're carrying this weight and they're doing all of this unpaid language labor um mm -hmm. and if like you said it it leaves a it has a lifelong effect on you mm -hmm. it's thank Absolutely. you for describing that because i don't think that's something that people maybe have in mind as a consequence of of language injustice yes definitely. um let's talk about language justice and mm -hmm. introduce our listeners to to what that is mm -hmm. well it's <laughs> It's an ever evolving definition. So <laughs> I always love just thinking through, um, you know, all the possibilities, right? All of the ways that we can define language justice. Also in the context that we're in, I know for me, it's a set of frameworks, a set of practices that support and ensure that anyone can participate fully in their communities, in their society, regardless of the languages or the linguistic variants that they speak. Um, and this is something that really pairs a lot of the tools that we see in traditional language access, things like interpretation, translation, captioning, etc. But I think what really differentiates language justice is an analysis of power, an analysis of how power operates through language in our society, and the fact that language can be used both to exclude and to exclude communities, right? Thinking of the historical context that from the first, you know, from the beginning of colonization, from the beginning of cultural genocide in this land, uh, language has been one of the first things that gets stripped from folks so that you know, they can begin this process of being stripped of other things like family members, like land, like histories. And so that analysis for us doing, and, and I think within language justice frameworks is really important because we don't just want to, you know, provide interpretation for someone to come into this meeting, listen to us speak in English, you know, receive this information as if they were empty vessels uh, and then move on and say, wow, we are, you know, we are doing really cool ling linguistic work uh, or language access work. Um, language access is a critical part of building language justice, but without an analysis of power, without really an emphasis of on language as a tool to transform, uh, inequality to transform structure, structural oppression, then I think we, you know, I think we have a lot more to do, right? I think that's a huge opportunity. And that's what we hope to really 
uh, take on and tackle when we're doing language justice work. And so what do what does language justice look like in practice when you're talking about using language to transform power structures mm-hmm. um, and, and saying everyone has the right to communicate, to understand and to be understood in the languages in which they feel most comfortable? How is language a right in practice? Yes, I can think of uh, two specific examples, and this is just very, very recently. Um, The collective that I'm part of is supporting a series of community conversations here in the Houston area uh, with families who are part of a home buyout process. Um, You know, their homes are in the floodplain, as uh, listeners probably know, even if you're not from Houston, yeah, Houston has undergone a lot of weather events, including Hurricane Harvey most recently, but even ongoing smaller storms that, you know, create a lot of flooding and a lot of other um, climate issues. And so these communities are part of a buyout process. And initially, all of the information that they were receiving, you know, from government entities came to their homes in terms of, you know, letters in English, people knocking on the door who mostly spoke English. And so that was a huge, you know, that was a huge barrier for folks to even understand what a home buyout is. You know, imagine someone coming to your door and trying to tell you in a language that you don't really understand that they want to buy your home, the home where you grew up in, your kids grew up in, right? Uh, And not understanding the full context of why that's happening. So you that's know, well, that would be that, challenging, even if that was coming to you in your first language. Exactly, really yes. confusing. Definitely, and and so I think that that component, um, what what you just mentioned, is actually another key piece. That language justice is not just between English and another language. It's not just between English and Spanish. You know, a lot of the work we do around language justice is understanding how the language we use, even in if, even if we're talking about English to someone who speaks English, there are also layers there of how we are not really fully encompassing, right, the complexity of communities. The fact that we value white mainstream English as the language, the standard, you know, the standard English, where there are so many other variants spoken by so many other communities that are seen as less than. Obviously, the difference between leg, uh, technical or super specialized language and expecting community members who don't have access to reading reading academic reports all day long to really engage with it in a you know in 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 an authentic and useful way. So I think the home buyouts process, one having creating spaces where they you know we could provide simultaneous interpretation and not just for again not just for the families experiencing the buyouts but also for the buyout managers and the city the county staff right because they need interpretation we sometimes forget but they need interpretation just as much as people who don't speak english right interpretation is for anyone who doesn't share a language, not just for the people who don't speak English. Uh, But I think beyond that, I think one layer that's important too is, you know, we started talking with staff, with people from the project team and identifying that there were some people who spoke different levels of of English um, and also just realizing that there's 
the what you mentioned earlier, being able to speak, understand, and be understood in the language in which you feel most comfortable when you're making major decisions, right? It's so critical. I, I can maybe say, oh yeah, I understand English. But if you're asking me to think about selling my home, moving my entire family, like the consequences of climate, uh, you know, climate disaster, I want to do it in the language that I feel most comfortable. I want to do it in the language that's going to make sense for, for me to fully understand. Uh, and I think that's key, right? Sometimes we, we're like, well, you speak a little English, let's just it's fine. You can just get get by and, um, you know, and we'll explain at the end or we, you know, ask any questions. But right. Like imagine having again, imagine having these difficult conversations um, in, in a language that you don't feel comfortable in. I mean, I think that has consequences, both tangible for right, like you're making a decision about selling your home, but then also it has consequences to your dignity as a human being, right? Being able to not really um, participate in something that's so crucial to you and what that feels like afterwards. This is Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales, and my guest is Houston-based artist, cultural organizer, language worker, and popular educator, Jose Eduardo Sanchez. We're talking about language justice. You're part, you were part, or maybe are still part, um, co-founder of a group called Antenna? Yes, Antenna Houston, correct. And um, so when you're talking about the the need for interpretation, Antenna is a group that uh, is really trying to figure out how to make this happen in all kinds of cultural and activist spaces. So I wonder, and we're going to get to radio in a second, but yes. um, I wonder <laughs> if you could just talk about sort of Antenna's approach, so, sort of like the needs that you've identified um, when you talked about simultaneous interpretation mm -hmm. and even backing up to the most basic of interpretation versus translation yes. and you know how <laughs> having to say over and over again these things are different <laughs> yes but anyway thank yeah you, yes thank <laughs> you for acknowledging that distinction yes um i i was very lucky to be part of a collective here in houston called An antenna houston um i i lived in los angeles also for a while and and in LA, I was part of Antena Los Angeles, which were, we call them our sister collectives. And it's just, it had such a profound impact on my, my work, the approach I have, not just to language justice, but to, you know, navigating other, other parts of my life. And I think one of the key pieces of Antena Houston and Antena LA was our, our centering of organizing along with um, communities who were not English speakers or communities who were not, you know, part of the, the dominant like English mainstream uh, communication uh, process. So I think that that was really key to how we approach different challenges, different um, multilingual and cross language challenges. Um, having folks who came from organizing backgrounds and even those who didn't, you know, welcoming into the space where we saw language justice as an organizing process, not just like a one finite point of like, oh, you did this, 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 and that, bam, you got language justice, but really a process and engaging folks 
because it can be overwhelming. I mean, imagine thinking, um, y'all are thinking about this, but, you know, oh my gosh, and I have to get all of these resources, find all this money to be able to cover this, change all these existing structures and systems. And gosh, it can be overwhelming. And and I think that's very, very valid. Um, But it also has to be a process that has to start somewhere. Right. And uh, so thinking of it as a process, I think it's important. And also uh, asking folks what they need is another really important part of the process. Asking people what they need and believing them, I should add, because that is a caveat that unfortunately is also necessary. Once you ask people what they need and believe them, that gives you so many tools and and such a better and clearer perspective about how to engage in your process to make your your spaces, uh, your organizations, you know, your, your services much more linguistically inclusive. Well, you're talking about language justice as a as a process of transforming power relationships. And I wonder, um, a lot of times, dominant language speakers will see this process as something that kind of pushes them to have to give something up. Mm-hmm. And I, my question is, um, how, what are some of the mechanics of language dominance that perpetuate injustice that dominant language speakers might just accept as normal or as they're as, as what, you know, they're entitled to? Yeah, so many things that are so difficult to see if you're just experiencing the world. Uh, or I should say, if you're ex- experiencing a lot of US context in English, um, the deliver, I think the delivery of, of basic information, access to news, as you mentioned, I think that is a huge one. Um, I, I can't imagine as, an, as someone who speaks English, you know, a hurricane hitting or wildfires coming near my home and scrambling to, you know, scrambling through the radio or through my TV TV channels or even online to find a source that's going to give me, you know, what, what would happen if I didn't speak English, I'd probably have to do all that, not find anything, go online, get lucky if I click on something, have to find the little button on top that says, you know, translate to Filipino, translate to Vietnamese, hit that and then hope that whoever created that took the time to make a a really good translation, didn't just pop it into Google Translate uh, or at least reviewed it after popping it into Google Translate and then have the information that I need to, you know, to make the best choices I I need to make for my family. And reliable, right? And accurate. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, because you're right. I mean, you can go on Facebook and find a million articles that are not necessarily going to lead you in the best direction. I think, yeah, I think a lot of the ways that we just navigate life, just very simply showing up to the the doctor, to a clinic, not having to go through, you know, step three, four, five, six, additionally, to find someone who speaks to your language or to get them to find an interpreter or to, you know, you know, work with the, the language line over the phone. I think essentially it's just, there's a lot of extra steps that as an English speaker in an English dominant world, you're just kind of not even, you just don't see, you just don't don't have to experience because, um, right, like, because you don't have to. I think that one key piece that I love about just language justice work is that 
language is not just a way to communicate language is also a way to see the world and different languages have just such unique and wonderful ways to see the world uh and you know i i also think about this as somewhat as thinking of the languages that i don't speak the cultures that i'm not part of right uh language is part of a cosmovision and carries with it wisdom that you know we don't have access to unless we engage with that and so when i think about bringing in folks um right who don't speak english providing interpretation we're bringing in so much new knowledge so much new wisdom so much new uh, you know, powerful ways to see the world. And that's a benefit to me as a non-speaker of that language. That is not taking anything away from me. That is adding layers and layers of, you know, of information, of, of, of ways to navigate my world, of ways to address problems, you know. So I always like to see it as a benefit. Um, we're never taking anything away. We, If anything, we are enriching the conversations we're having right at community town halls we're enriching the access to you know information and and ways to see the world and approach problems which i personally am really grateful for i and i think others can really benefit from that this brings us to your work and the the your um i it's not an idea it's your craft i guess yeah. uh, <laughs> of radical listening so how do does language and radical listening intersect in your art? Yes, I think that's the piece that I um, sort of stumbled upon, like so many parts of, of this work, right? I just happened to be a child interpreter. Here I am now interpreting and doing language justice work. I think this goes back to, again, a childhood memory of me being in my grandmother's kitchen, surrounded by my mom, all of my aunts, essentially all of the women in my family, and, you know, just sitting there as they cooked, being entranced by the smells, by the sounds, the sizzlings, but also by the stories that they told, by the ways that they responded to each other, by the things that they remembered about their very long uh, and, and, and and exciting lives and being in that space um, again just being able to have have a connection build be building a connection just sitting there maybe tearing a little tortilla like you know to pass the time um, and that to me was one of the first experiences of radical listening of being able to um, see beyond just the words that are coming out of someone's mouth, but really what parts, what parts of their spirit, what parts of their soul come with the stories that they tell and the way that they tell them. Um, and, and that is something that I've tried to really honor throughout the organizing work that I do, because again, I think radical listening is a huge part of organizing. Um, and it has really started to push me in, in other directions, right? Like, what are things that we are not listening to because we also prioritize human language, right? What is What are the lands that we're on telling us? What, what are the languages that they remember because of the history of displacement and, um, and taking away, you know, from folks who 
who were stewarding these lands? What are the languages of nature around us? We we talk a lot about climate resilience, you know, and, and environmental justice, but I think listening to the earth, right? Listening to nature around us can give us so much of what the knowledge that's already there, that has been there for centuries, for millennia, uh, to really have a different approach. And so one of the things that in my artistic practice I have been trying to um, just experiment with, right, is both capturing those sounds, um, or I should say documenting those sounds, capturing sounds, such a <laughs> such a violent word, uh, documenting those sounds, and then inviting other people, right? I think this is something that it's difficult to do alone, and just inviting other people to experience that, and, and to just sit with that and figure out, wow, this is something I've never heard, or this is something I've never heard in this way. And I think uh, putting on my artist hat, I th think that allows me to just explore and experiment in in ways that, um, yeah, that, that can really push people out of their comfort zone, but that can also make them feel uh, more, more connection. You're tuned to Byline Mendocino here on KZYX. I'm Alicia Bales, and my guest is Houston-based artist, cultural organizer, language worker, and popular educator, Jose Eduardo Sanchez. Well, since we're on a, a radio medium, right, an audible medium, I was wondering if, would it make sense to play an excerpt of one of your sonic invitations? Oh, of course. Yeah, we can do that. <laughs> okay, so um, which yeah, one and how would you like to introduce it? Yeah, so I think one piece that I would love to share, and this is on, on my website, so it'll be, it should be easy to access. Okay. Um, but this is the the third the third piece called Lupita, um, and we don't we don't have to play the whole thing. It's about five minutes thirteen seconds, um, but yeah, I think this one is it's one of the last ones that I uploaded because it was a very difficult one to to upload. Um, it's um, my my aunt um, passed away over the pandemic, so almost about a year ago, um, and I unfortunately was not able. She was living, she was in Mexico. She's living in Mexico. I wasn't able to go back uh, and see her one last time. I wasn't able to be there for her, um, yeah, for her for her services for her burial. So this is a, a this is basically a conversation that I had with her. Um, after her her passing, I I went on a long hike and I just uh, started recording the sounds that were coming up around me. I I was by myself and and so I this was sort of my processing of that um, of that experience of not being able to have that last conversation with her in person while she was here. So going out in and basically. Um, you know, finding that conversation where um, in in the place where I was and, and trying to kind of navigate that and, and decipher that in a way that really helped me um, reconnect. Um, I, I don't want to say one last time, but reconnect again with my aunt who, as I mentioned, I wasn't able to, to say goodbye to. All right. So we'll play a minute or two of, of Lupita.
Okay, so that was an excerpt of Lupita. Can you talk about about that piece and what people just heard? Yes. So uh, thank you, thank you for playing that. <laughs> I um, this was a, a, a really intense piece for me. I it, it's one of the last ones. It's the last one actually that I have uploaded into the project. Uh, this was recorded shortly after the death of one of my aunts. Um, whose name the piece shares, her name was Lupita. Um, she passed during the pandemic. Um, and unfortunately, I was not able to to travel to Mexico to be with my family, to uh, to see her, to to say goodbye, um, and, and just to be part of that process of, you know, bringing the family together and, and remembering and just, yeah, honoring um, what she meant for us. So this is something that I recorded um, shortly after that here in Houston, not not in Mexico. I decided to go to um, one of the places, one of the um, places around here where I typically walk when I need to just clear my mind or find a little bit of solace or quiet. Um, and I, I decided to go on this walk and and try to have that last conversation, or I shouldn't say last, but try to have um, another conversation with her um, in this process of just walking, of just moving through um, through the space. And, and so this is what I, what I recorded um, and what I was able to, the way that the the way that the sound has been transformed is both to reflect uh, what was in the recording, right, as I was taking the walk, but to reflect the emotions from the conversation that I was having with Lupita um, and, and what it felt like to be able to, you know, in, engage again and, and feel again and, and smell again and, you know, just be, be in the presence of someone that was so important to me um in and in, in do it in the way that um that i felt made sense to me and and made sense to to honor her as well and it's beyond language right exactly yeah exactly it's something that i couldn't i couldn't yeah it's a conversation that we couldn't have we could not we could have never had in person in this world and we were able to have it beyond language um, after her passing. Um, so, and that's radical listening, this whole idea. I mean, everybody that's engaging with us right now is a listener mm -hmm. and that transformation toward becoming radical listeners <laughs> would be very exciting, I think. That's the potential for a medium such as ours, which is radio, which is, um, you know, broadcasting for free throughout our community to almost every corner of our community. So I wonder if you would indulge us as a community and sort of use your experience and your wisdom and your organizing work um, to help us think about how to apply these concepts of radical listening and language justice um, mm -hmm. to to radio, how would that work? I mean, one of the things in um, in your work with Antenna and the um, building multilingual and bilingual spaces is, you know, types of of language interactions or transfers that involve different types of 
interpretation, whether or not it's consecutive interpretation where one language and then the next language and, or um, simultaneous interpretation where you're doing, you know, both languages at once. Um, mm. We want to try to apply these concepts to our local radio to make it accessible, this beautiful thing that we have, this community radio, to make it accessible to more of our communities. Um, how would that work, do you think? <laughs> does, it <laughs> does it inspire you in any way to think yeah. about? That's a phenomenal question. And um, I am so glad that you reached out to this interview because I think radio is such a powerful media medium um, and it's also uh, so accessible, right? So how can we even expand that uh, and welcome more people into this experience. I mean, there's so many ideas running through my mind. I think that um, there's uh, part of me is wondering, like, what is a what is a non-English takeover of the sound waves look like, right? What is what is that experience to me and an unsuspecting listener uh, to start hearing Spanish coming out and like, what what would I do, right? Do I sit there and, and try to decipher? Do I sit there and just enjoy it? Uh, do I call the station and figure out what's going on? Why is this happening, right? I think, uh, do, do I get angry? Like, why am I, you know, why is my, you know, my station being interrupted? I actually think all of those feelings are valid. All of those reactions are valid and make sense. But, you know, I would love to hear from folks like what that felt like and and where we go from there i think going back to your your point around just creating multilingual spaces really just listen going out to um the spanish speakers in the community and and really listening to what are the things that they would love to hear on the radio on on their station right what are the what is the information that they that they really need, but also what are the stories? What are, what are the voices, right? That are going to also connect with with other parts of them um, that they can see themselves, or rather, where they can hear themselves reflected um, in a station that does such critical work and that already reaches so many folks. Um, and then bringing people together, I think that's you know there's many different steps, but also bringing people together, and this is where tools like interpretation um, can be super, super powerful, right? Um, doing simultaneous, a space where folks can just connect each other, have conversations across language um, through through interpretation and in a space that really feels bilingual, that it's not, hey, Spanish speakers, we are making us, we are accommodating you into our English world, but rather inviting everyone right, who doesn't share the same language to really take the risk, right? Because when we do this, we're taking risk. When we're creating multilingual spaces, when we're practicing radical listening, we're always taking risk. And so inviting people to come together to take a risk um, and then really honor the all the wonderful possibilities of that, right? As I was sharing earlier, um, the the new wisdom that's gonna come out of that of that space, the the new ways of seeing the world, the new, um, you know, just the new connections that can be built, sometimes even not speaking a language, there is something about being in a space where both people, right, speak one language, speak another, being in a space with both of them feel seen, heard, and welcome, that by virtue of sharing that space, they can also start sharing a connection. So I would just say, you know, I welcome folks to, to really take risks to together, 
and and be open to the ways that language can really um, open up those possibilities. I love it. Thank you. I wonder, can we talk a little bit about what the risk is? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what is it the risk of being misunderstood? Uh, is it the risk of feeling, um, I don't know, like you said, invaded upon? Like, what is the risk of, uh, try, uh, you know, we, we sort of live in this culture where certain languages are considered good and certain languages are, are put upon with an idea that they're not as good, which is a mind-blowing idea, <laughs> that like some languages could be better than others. So anyway, what what are the risks? Yeah, uh, this, I mean... That's <laughs> there, there's in any form of communication, right? We're we're taking risk of, as you said, being misunderstood. And I think when you are um, adding different languages or different linguistic variants, right, that risk sometimes can be can be heightened. Um, so I think that's one thing. But I also think it's the risk of, you know, of maybe being an English speaker and seeing you're seeing English decentered in the space and, and having to question yourself in ways that you hadn't had to question yourself before, right? Uh, the risk of feeling uncomfortable, of say, of thinking, wow, I am such a, I've always been such an open-minded person, you know, such a welcoming person. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm in the situation where again, there might be some feelings coming out that I don't like. I, oh, I never thought I was this person who would have this reaction. And, and that's valid, but let's explore it, right? Let's not get stuck in that. Um, and I think there's also a risk of being of being seen. I know this sounds this can sound counterintuitive, but there's a risk in actually being seen and heard and 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 showing up fully. There's still vulnerability that now then starts to open up. Um, and there's a certain level of you know, of both questioning as well as responsibility, you know, empowerment ag- along with insecurity, right? I think saying like, wow, I, I am seen, I am part of the space. Well, that changes things, right? I have to now start, now that I see myself as belonging to somewhere, maybe that actually means like I have to also, right, uh, reconsider the ways that I show up. Show up. So I think risk can happen all around. I mean, logistically, your equipment could run out of batteries. You could have forgot to charge it. You know, the people are, people are dropped on the wrong channel. I mean, even at that level, but, but really more broadly, right? The risks that we take when we are listening to each other, um, I think are tell us more about and are almost just as important as like the listen, the, what comes out of it, right? What we're listening to. Um, and I, I don't never, I, for me, risk is not an inherently negative thing. For me, risk is an opportunity. And, and I invite listeners to maybe approach, um, you know, multilingual spaces, cross-language communication um, in, in with that sort of, you know, I'm taking a risk uh, because I want to have an opportunity that I wouldn't otherwise have. So the risk of um, deepening our, our relationships and our sense of responsibility to each other and what that what that means as we move forward with all of these challenges yes. that we're facing together. Well, Jose Eduardo, thank you so much. Um, I want to give people a chance to find out more about your work. And so where can they hear and see you? <laughs> and what, what's what's next for you? 
Yes. Um, so I, um, folks can check out my website. It's jose-eduardo. So it's j-o-s-e-e-d-u-a-r-d-o.com. Um, and I, you know, I share some of my projects there. I probably need to do a better job at posting. So that'll be a nice little incentive. Uh, but also I wanna um, highlight the, the my collective work that I do. I'm, I'm part of a, a new collective that was formed about two years ago, a collective called Tecolot. Uh, Tecolot is a Nahuatl world, word for um, owl. Um, and growing up, my grandma always taught me that, you know, um, in her indigenous beliefs, owls are always, are, owls are messengers between worlds, right? And we just thought a lot of the language justice work that we do, uh, we thought it was just so appropriate to think about the, the work of the owl of being a messenger between worlds. Um, and so that collective is called Tecolot, um, T-E-C-O-L-O-T-L uh, dot O-R-G. Um, and again, it's just a lot of folks with different experiences um, and really pushing at the edges of language justice work, right? Where can we go beyond just interpretation and translation? Also, where can we go be beyond just English and Spanish? And um, especially, again, when we live in, in a country, in cities and regions that are so uh, linguistically diverse. So yeah, I hope folks can check it out and always reach out with any thoughts, questions, reflections, uh, or just to say hello. All right, well, thank you so much. What a wonderful thing for you to spend so much time with me this morning. I just so appreciate it. And I'll, can I call you again? <laughs> of course. No, thank you so much for reaching out. And I, you know, I, I love this conversation and I appreciate your, your questions and yeah, just creating the space to, to have this, to have this connection. That was my guest, Houston-based artist, cultural organizer, language worker, and popular educator, Jose Eduardo Sanchez. This is Byline Mendocino, and I'm Alicia Bales. We were talking, obviously, about language justice and uh, the risks inherent in creating a multilingual spaces, but also the uh, the rewards or the benefits or the imperatives. Um, you can find uh, Jose Eduardo's essay, Radical Listening on Language, Displacement, and Land at his website, joseeduardo.com. That's J-O-S-E-E-D-U-A-R-D-O.com. But now we're going to turn toward um, the work that's going on here at KZYX. Language justice is one of the concepts that we are uh, using as a guiding principle for our efforts to expand our radio station to include uh, Spanish language coverage um, at multilingual radio. And Victor Palomino is here with me in the studio. Hey, Victor, good morning. Good morning, Alicia. And he is our newest staff member. He is our new news director. Um, first, what is your reaction to the, what uh, Jose Eduardo was saying? It, it, he touched in the, all the points that uh, it's... Do you have to think about when you're thinking about bilingual projects and bilingual spaces and that part, what he said, uh, to take a risk is basically what we're doing here in KCYS. We're taking a risk to experiment on creating bilingual spaces and being, uh, vulnerable and to producing something and inviting a new community to, or a community that has been there always, but we're not only inviting, right. but reaching out to them and asking them. And I think we are also practicing that radical listening through our survey and like going to the communities and ask them, 
how how can we build this together? So it was amazing to listen to the, him and and remembering also me as an immigrant and coming to this country and going to learning English and going through all those phases of like, I, I didn't have to translate for anybody. I was translating for myself, <laughs> but it's a, it's a whole process. So it's, it's, it's this amazing work that he's doing. So yeah, one of the things that he says and that everybody says when you start to engage with with opening up from just an English-only space to a multilingual space is um, to not just project onto communities what you think they need. Hey, hey, Spanish speakers, we're going to start serving you now, but to actually ask people what they need. And my favorite thing, ask people what they need and believe them when they tell you what are the things they would love to hear, information that they need, and the stories and the voices mm -hmm. that, that they want included. So we took that seriously, and we have been conducting a survey. We call it our, our audience research for the Spanish-speaking community. And mm -hmm. you've been interviewing people in Spanish, asking them just this question. So do you, we've finally gotten, I think we got to a critical mass and we're going to start analyzing mm -hmm. the, the interviews. Do you want to talk about what people have told you about what they need? Yeah, we're very curious to know how people are, uh, what are they listening, especially what they get in their news and what kind of topics are there uh, they want to listen on the radio. It's been really, uh, really good to know, and also kind of like frightened at the same time that people don't don't have access to local information in their language. It's like they know more about what's going on in their countries of origin or the countries of their parents. So that's a uh, especially in in we live in a place where we have a lot of uh, wildfires. We nature is around us, and it's not easy to find places to escape or to find that information and I talked to some people and there was a lady who told me like she doesn't know or how to get information from uh, fires or for emergency information and it told me a story like once she knew about a fire because she saw it because oh, <laughs> she goodness. started seeing the smoke coming out and then she realized like it was time to leave so there's a lot of uh there's there's a uh, a lot of room there to work with these communities, but they also want to know about the, what's going on in the community. You know, they want to know uh, what's there for their children, what's there for their families. They want to know what's going on around so they can participate. So yeah, they have the same interest and curiosity than other communities, but they don't have access to all that. So we're trying to by listening to them trying to find ways that not only we can provide that, but invite them to participate so they can also be the ones producing their own content. Right. So it's not just here, let us translate or interpret. I love the concept. There's this manifesto that Antenna has um, mm -hmm. uh, about in interpretation and all of the different ways that interpretation is not just, you know, one word gets translated into the word from the other language, but it's a process of, you know, uh, building a bridge mm -hmm. in some way, like a, the f you're kind of a physical linguistic bridge between you two, know, people, yeah, yeah. two people, two ideas, you're like a you're part of a conversation. Exactly. You become kind of like the, the beacon of the conversation. Is right. I have been in that position. I've been in that position of interpreting uh, in a medical setting for uh -huh. people. And it's really interesting because it's not only words, it's not only language. It's like you're interpreting your body language, your position, the way that you are kind of like trying to conduct and and get what they're saying and how they're feeling to a medical person and then transmitting that back. It's, it's an interesting position if you can be there. 
Yeah, so not just uh, one, a one-way proposition it's here. Not, but like a literal translation. Yeah, and it's so we're, we, we would we're also part of this project is to invite community radio from Spanish speakers interpreted back into English mm -hmm. and both directions so that we don't just have that sort of here, let me... Let me give you all of my wisdom translated into Spanish. Yeah, like what he was saying. Here's my Google translation right. of what I want you to know. And that's what we are trying to or been experimenting a little bit with the bilingual news segments. It's like putting those two words there. It's kind of like being in a, in an office or in a medical place and listening to the same news or the same story in two languages. So it's kind of like that puts you a little bit in the world of like a, a bilingual person or a person that lives in two, in two different cultures that have to live through that all the time. You know, it's like you see things in English translated into Spanish in your brain and you have to continue doing that in fractions of a second. And the physical experience of that and sort of the, the whole, um, it's, it's like, it's just part of the experience of living. Like it's not just listening in your first language and and experiencing language and ideas coming through it's like this whole other thing of of switching between the two languages or or maybe more languages i just love what jose eduardo talks about with um the language of the land itself mm -hmm. you know and and this is way beyond spanish and english he does talk about indigenous languages and mm -hmm. displacement and you know i think about the millennia of conversations between cultures on the and the land and how the, the the names of places and you know all of that stuff belongs to the land and the people who belong to this land and yeah. you know we're just living in this crazy time when that's just absent from you know from the dominant spaces it's so, so abstract you know we just yeah. go through that without thinking and yeah that's something that we also try to do you know it's like how to break those power struggles with language you know it's like a dominant language means that you have control over the situation so how, how do you change that and be more accessible for other people and how does radio contribute to that so that's what we want to hear uh from you our radical listeners <laughs> <laughs> you know be we'd love for you to be part of this conversation of course there's an opportunity to participate in the survey mm -hmm. do you want to talk about that yeah you can always reach to us and we can uh conduct a survey with you. It will be interesting if you, uh, as we go through the survey and we get more information about what we get in, we can share that with our listeners and we will put it on the, on the website so people can see what are the responses from our Spanish listeners. Yeah. Any other thoughts about language justice as we try to apply these principles in practice? Well, there's something that I heard from a language justice collective and it's something that it clicked to me that is like we have to think about uh, that people want to know and have information in the language that they think in the language that they dream you know it's like something that is so important that you don't think about that is uh, you feel comfortable in your brain <laughs> with one language and having the right and 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 having your justice to be able to navigate in that is so important so we're going to try to still taking more risks and, <laughs> and it's a process. I yeah. love that too. It is a process. It's an experiment. It's an experimentation. So well, I invite our listeners to help us to comment or if you have any ideas or 
participate and we're doing this together. We're yeah. trying to create this space together. And we're trying to expand the the idea of what together, who gets to be together, exactly. <laughs> what that means. So, all right. Well, thanks, Victor. And thanks so much. It's an incredible process to collaborate with you on this. And thank you, KZYX, and all of our listeners who are part of this grand experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Byline Mendocino. I am your host, Alicia Bales. I alternate every other Friday morning at nine o'clock with Joy LeClaire and Forthright Radio. Thank you all so much for listening, and I'll be back at you in two weeks. Thanks, Victor. Thank you. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.